The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. John Bell Hood, the gallant Hood of Texas who played hell in Tennessee. He was a reckless gambler with his men's lives, an opium addict tormented by his wounds. Everyone listening to the show knows the old stories. But today, everything you know is wrong. We'll get a new look at General John Bell Hood by... Brian, by, from author Brian Craig Miller, author of John Bell Hood and the Fight for Civil War Memory, today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful autumn afternoon in October 2010, the last Friday afternoon in October, it's the 29th and enjoying the sights and sounds of the campus here at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, one of the numerous component campuses of the University of North Carolina, but not speaking for the university or its general administration or local administration or anyone, and I know my guest likewise will speak for himself. We're all here representing our own views, as always, on Civil War Talk Radio. We'll have uh, interesting views in the weeks ahead, as we will today. Uh, James Oates joins us next week to talk about uh, Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. There will be no show, no live show, the following Friday, November 12th. That's a, uh, that is a Friday. Uh, but the North Carolina Literary and Historical Association is having their annual meeting. And if you're anywhere in the neighborhood of the state capitol, come on by. Uh, Mark Bradley and I will be doing a panel from 3.30 to 4.30, talking about new perspectives on North Carolina in the Civil War, uh, of which my presentation will have nothing to do with North Carolina whatsoever. I had already prepared something before I found out the title of the panel, so we'll just have to deal with that. But it does have to do with the Civil War, and I hope you can come on by for that. 
uh, no live show the following week as I'll be attending the Lincoln Forum in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And if you're up there, stop in and say hello. Always good to meet listeners to Civil War Talk Radio live around the country in different places. And then it'll be the Thanksgiving weekend, but we'll return in December with Elizabeth Pryor uh, talking about uh, a different Confederate general, the famous Robert E. Lee. And we'll have a number of interesting shows in the weeks that follow that as well. So please do join us for those. If you are so inclined and want to support the show and its purchase of books and other materials, uh, libations for the host and so on, uh, please feel free to contribute to uh, CivilWarTR at AOL.com. You can use PayPal to send funds that way. And in return, anyone sending $25 who wants it can get a copy of All for the Regiment or a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves or, for that matter, a copy of both. Uh, I'll be happy to clear some space on my shelves and use your contribution of $25 or more to the show to buy something new, like this week's book, which we'll be talking about in just a moment. But before we do that, a, uh, a final plug. Last week, I mentioned what I described as the, the coolest thing ever, uh, certainly ever in the history of world talk radio, of Civil War talk radio. Uh, it's a website. The website has changed since last week. It has a new URL this week. Uh, it's still called Impediments of War, all one word. But the address is now just www impedimentsofwar.org. And if you go to that site, it's not yet been picked up by Google, so the search engines don't find it, but type in impedimentsofwar.org and you'll go to a really helpful website that lists all the shows that have been archived uh, on World Talk Radio with their titles, uh, with links to them, so you can go right to the show and listen or download it. But you can see at a glance who's been on, who's coming up. Uh, it's a real advantage over the, uh, the, the format on the main website, which could theoretically have the titles if I could send them all in, but I, I just don't do that on a regular basis. Um, but they're hard to see anyway. The, the dark gray and black color scheme is not maybe the best ever uh, uh, to have chosen for that, graphically speaking. So uh, check out www.impedimentsofwar.org. Uh, thanks to Mark Gaffney for putting that up. It's, uh, it's awfully helpful and uh, much appreciated. As time goes by, he promises to add more things to it. We may be able to put links to the author's books on it. You can buy them through Amazon that way and It'll give the website owner a little uh, support in keeping the, the website going and allow you to get hold of those books quickly and easily and see just what it is we've been talking about here on the show. Because uh, the, the flow continues. The sesquicentennial is uh, about to get underway, and there will be more, uh, yet more interesting works published on the war in the, the five years ahead of us. Well, the one today certainly takes a, a new look at a familiar topic. Um, the topic is uh, John Bell Hood, the well-known Confederate general, the full title, John Bell Hood and the Fight for Civil War Memory. And the author is Brian Craig Miller. Dr. Miller, are you there? I am, Jerry. How are you today? Good. Good, good to talk with you. Uh, Brian, you and I met for the first time, I believe, in the... 
uh, in the vestibule of the Confederate White House. What an interesting place to meet, wasn't it? It, it, I don't get to say that about most guests on the show, but uh, we were there in June for the Civil War Historians Conference, and I had seen your book on the University of Tennessee Press table and was thinking, uh, well, this will be a good thing to talk about on the show. And then when uh, I saw your name tag there in the the hallway and, and we got to chat and set this up, so I appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, and likewise, it's a beautiful sunny afternoon, fall afternoon here in Emporia, Kansas, uh, a few miles west of you there. That's right. You're at uh, Emporia State University. How did you How did you end up there? How, t- tell us a little bit about your your uh, background. Uh, I, uh, I I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I actually grew up in, in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, the home of Little League Baseball, yes. also the lumber capital of the world, interestingly enough, during the 19th century. And I uh, went to Penn State for my undergrad, did my graduate degree, degrees at the University of Mississippi, and then uh, had the opportunity to come out here uh, a couple years ago, actually, uh, teaching 19th century America Civil War history here at ESU. Ah, well, the uh, – now, when you were at Penn State, was uh, Gary Gallagher there? He was, yes. So I I had a a wonderful opportunity to take uh, the Civil War course with him, and then uh, I also had a chance to take some classes with Bill Blair and Mark Neely, who came in as I was finishing up my uh, undergraduate degree as the Civil War Center really got going there in in those last years of the late 90s. Wow. Which reminds me, I – so an email this week, the Civil War Center at Penn State has a new publication. Um, they've got a new a new journal, I guess, which may rival the uh, the famous Civil War history from uh, uh, from Kent State. I think it's called the Journal of the Civil War Era or yes. something like that. Uh, are you familiar with that? Uh, I am, yes. Actually, interestingly enough, I am the book review editor now for Civil War History, The, uh, I guess you could call it the rival journal in the field. But uh, I think it's a very interesting opportunity for the profession, the fact that there will be two journals and it will give us, I think, a, a greater reach, if you will, to, to more readers and give more scholars the opportunity to to publish articles and reviews of works. It's, I think it's a, a really exciting thing that the discipline of Civil War history can have two journals, and uh, it will be uh, it'll be an interesting but, I think, uh, rewarding opportunity coming up over the next few years. Now, there was a second journal for a while called Columbiad that tried to reach uh, a broader audience but still with peer-reviewed and, and referenced articles. Do you remember that one? I do not. No, I'm not familiar it, with that one. It didn't last very long, unfortunately. It was a promising idea. And then you've got things like North and South that publish uh, often articles with references by people in the field, but but aimed squarely at a popular audience. Uh, I guess we're lucky to be in a field that has some so, such different uh, uh, outlets to the public compared to uh, you know people doing, say, mid 17th century French history. Right. Oh, absolutely. And the sense I'm getting from both uh, from the new journal as well as Civil War history under the new editorial leadership of Leslie Gordon is that, you know, it's really going to embrace the entire Civil War era. I know recently some of the books that I've been sending out for review deal with uh, a wealth of topics, even some, you know, Jacksonian era politics, uh, abolitionism, slavery, 
sort of post-war veterans culture, all sorts of elements that stretch beyond the traditional 61 to 65 years, which I think really shows you how much Civil War scholarship has grown to include the entire era now that the journals will, both journals will really reflect that as well. Well, this this ties in with what we'll talk about in your book. Your your analysis of, of John Bell Hood is not a standard biography and uh, certainly not a traditional military history. Do you see if both journals move in that direction in terms of broadening? Is there uh, is the field going to stray too far from its roots in terms of military history, which? The the academy may not be particularly interested in, but the the, the cash paying public definitely is. That that's a great question. You know, I think the incorporation of new types of military history studies, particularly those that deal with issues of memory and veterans' issues, post-war adjustments, if you will, commemoration, I think obviously stretched the, the Civil War era well into the late 19th, even the early 20th century. We, you know, we've seen particular memory studies in recent years, uh, one that I can pick off the top of my head, David Blight's book, that really took the Civil War well beyond. We, we're, I think we're seeing more of those studies as well. I think, I think, you know, quite honestly, there's room for both. I think that we'll still definitely have the traditional military studies of, of Gettysburg and, and the big battles and some of the t- more traditional military biographies, but I think a lot of the younger Civil War scholars and writers are really delving into these post-war issues, um, even some maybe darker issues of the American Civil War, things that may be influenced by what's going on in current American history and culture uh, with, with the conflicts overseas currently of and the veterans' issues that those men and women are dealing with when they return home. I think they are greatly influencing Civil War studies as we move forward. Well, I saw, I think the, uh, was it the Tom Watson Award, uh, the, the big book award this year went to Daniel Sutherland's book on guerrilla war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that speaks to just what you said, that, that guerrilla war, uh, unconventional war, is is a hot topic now. And, and uh, Dan was on this show, and, and I've talked to a number of other people on this show who have written on these on, on atrocities or guerrilla conflicts or uh, places where the the line between civilian and, and soldier is blurred. And that's exactly, of course, what, what uh, is happening in the world today. So... I yeah, think Dan's book is great. Absolutely, a, a wonderful study. Mm-hmm. Well, now your book, you look at uh, uh, Hood. Let's talk a little bit about Hood himself, just sort of laying the groundwork. Uh, uh, you begin by describing his childhood, and you, we, we get the standard facts, when and where he was born, his family, and so on. Um well, I hate to start with a trivia question, but I will. Was he namesake of John Bell, the, the candidate in 1860? Do you know if that's where... I, I'm not familiar with that particular... I don't believe so, no. I, I don't have any knowledge of that particular, of of where his name came from. You know, who does... He's a difficult biography topic, I think, just because he didn't really leave us a lot of information about his his upbringing you know his one of the only major sources we have is his memoir and hood really glossed over uh in a, just a couple paragraphs really his entire life leading up uh especially the elements leading up to his west point education they were re- really rather brief and most of the background information on hood's lineage is done through you know 
things like Ancestry.com, those sorts of you know, genealogical studies to try to put the Hood family tree together. But I, I'm not aware that uh, this, and I could be proven wrong here, but I'm not aware that he was named after the uh, the presidential candidate. Now, in his youth, as you say, there was not a lot of uh, you know, information about him specifically, but you talk quite a bit about the environment in which he grew up in mm-hmm. Kentucky, that, that that this must have shaped him. How, how do you see that? Yeah, I, this, the... The way I framed the be- the beginning of the book was sort of taking on this cultural biography to really try to understand the world around Hood to see how it may have shaped him and and you know this is really in response to some of the historiography analysis of John Bell Hood. Uh, uh, a few authors have pointed out that one of the reasons they believe that Hood failed in during the Civil War at during particularly at Atlanta, Franklin, and Nashville in 1864 was because he had a wild childhood, as they put it now. And they said he grew up in too much southern excess of, you know, horse racing and gambling. I think the things that we traditionally see as, as, as part of southern culture, this journey that young, young boys would go through to become southern men. And I didn't, you know, studying Antebellum, Kentucky, which is just a fascinating place because you have such an interesting blend of, I guess you could say elements of both northern and southern culture. You have, you know, uh, growing abolitionist societies amongst a slave culture. You have a pretty hardy temperance movement taking root in Kentucky. At the same time, you have, you know, bourbon distilleries scattered across the landscape. So it creates this unique blend, if you will, for a young boy like Hood to grow up. And, you know, looking at some of the elements of Southern culture, I I didn't necessarily see it as wild. I think that Hood learning to hunt or horse racing or riding about is really just part of that natural transition that young boys went to really define their their manhood amongst their peers. And when Hood decides not to follow the family profession to go into medicine, the military in many ways takes that takes the place there as a as a mechanism for him to define himself as a new southern man, if you will, in society. So he you say the the family profession was medicine. His father was a doctor. Yes. And and he did not choose to do that. Um, so he goes to West Point. How? How? Uh, uh, not everyone can go to West Point. It, it's kind of a big deal. How? How did he? Did his father have enough prominence that he was able to? His mother's side actually had some connections to uh, a, a legislator, actually French, who helped secure his appointment uh, to to the military academy, and without a ton of formal education to get him in, and the letters of support helped, and then off to West Point he went. Uh, there is sort of an anecdote that his father was not really pleased about this decision that Hood had made, but it's something that obviously Hood felt very passionately about. He briefly mentions in his memoir that it's following in the footsteps of his ancestors who had been part of the revolutionary generation and fighting the war, and that he wanted to follow in their footsteps. And, and that spurred him to go to West Point, which has a very difficult curriculum that Hood did not completely excel at, which is something else that historians have pointed out, that second area of why he failed later in, in the war was because he didn't get the greatest grades at West Point while he was while he was there. He had a good time at, at times while he was at West Point. Well, you, you publish a, a table showing his demerits uh, at West Point, and we see some of the things people got punished for in those days. Uh, but everybody got demerits, uh, everybody except Robert E. Lee, I guess, the, the right. only... 
Well, that, that, the interesting thing about that is what I had looked into is that sometimes some of your demerits could be removed. So we, 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 Lee may have had a demerit or two here that was expunged from his record after good behavior as well. So, so we just don't know that yet. We're going to take a short break right now. We'll come back in just a moment. We're talking today with Brian Craig Miller about John Bell Hood. We'll be back in a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Life navigation sounds simple enough, but it is really about harnessing the power of your own intuition to focus on the positive things in your life rather than the negative. Host Augustina Torgelson will help you to lead a happier life with less stress. Augustina's vision is to see a world of one community living in harmony with nature and earth. Embark on the journey of self-exploration and new opportunities. Tune in to Life Navigation every Tuesday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back, I think, to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, the the music from the break there comes back and uh, confusion reigns. But we're back here again with Brian Craig Miller, author of John Bell Hood and the Fight for Civil War Memory, which, uh, as we discussed in the first half, uh, is in some parts a, uh, a biography of a well-known military figure. We talked about uh, Hood's childhood up to his career at West Point. But it uh, this book is not. Uh, it, it goes well beyond the, the, the standard biography that simply tells us what uh, the person did. Uh, and Brian, you talked about the the cultural uh, environment in which Hood grew up uh, in in antebellum Kentucky. One thing that made me think of was that uh, that's where Lincoln grew up too, mm-hmm. uh, and and. And Lincoln actually rebelled in many ways against the frontier environment. He didn't uh, drink or chew tobacco. He didn't uh, curse. He didn't vote Democratic. He didn't do a lot of things uh, that other Jacksonian frontiersmen did. Uh, did did Hood, in, in your view, absorb much of his environment growing up, or did he did he push back against it? I think it's probably mixed a little bit, especially with, you know, Hood obviously, you know, decides that he, you know, even though his father owns slaves, you know, Hood personally will not own any slaves. And it seems that, you know, as, as we move forward in time, when, when you know, as after, after Hood spends some time following West Point, he goes out to California, then he's in Texas, and he really seems to really thrive in Texas. He has a lot of success militarily there. He really builds a friendship with Robert E. Lee and some of the other commanders as part of the Second Cavalry. And then, in a sense, Hood really begins to define himself as a Texan, if you will. He he pointed, points out in his memoir that you know when Kentucky makes the decision not to secede, that he felt called to go with his new home, Texas. And I think in many ways, Hood becomes synonymous with the Texas Brigade that he leads. And then after the war, he even considers settling in Texas. He goes back for a visit. He does make a few brief visits to Kentucky as well during this time, but it seems in many ways that his personal identity 
has shifted based on on this decision of where he wants to, who he wants to represent, if you will, during the war. Well, one of the influences on him certainly you mentioned in passing there is, is Lee, who he encounters. Lee, the, the, the commandant at West Point, mm-hmm. but also. Uh, um, he encounters him again in the Second Cavalry, the the regiment that contains so many future Civil War generals uh, serving in Texas. Uh, what about the relationship between Hood and Lee? It, it's an interesting one as as it develops. I think there's this sense of mutual respect at at first. I think definitely Hood really and marvels at his opportunities to spend time with Lee. They have some conversations about relationships and family out on the Texas frontier when, when Lee is out there as, as part of the forts that were established to, to protect the frontier. And then, of course, as, as the two of these gentlemen move to Virginia, to that theater of the American Civil War, it seems that Lee relies quite a bit on John Bell Hood, knowing that, for example, at Gaines Mill, the Texas Brigade is charged with making that that big frontal assault that helps push McClellan back on the peninsula, but at a great cost in terms of men. And it seems that Lee constantly looks to Hood as a lower-ranking officer as Hood works his way up to to be front and center in the battle. And after the death of, of Stonewall Jackson, you know, Lee writes a letter to Hood talking about how he will now rely more so on Hood, that he missed Hood during the campaign because Hood missed Chancellorsville altogether. He was down in, in southeastern Virginia at the time period and that he relies on him. But then with Hood being removed, particularly from his injuries and then ending up with the Army of Tennessee, we get sort of this mixed reaction moment during the general controversy over if Je- Joseph Johnson should be removed as commander of the Army of Tennessee and, of course, Jefferson Davis solicits Robert E. Lee's advice on this. And Lee, of course, gives sort of a very lukewarm answer here, not really coming out endorsing Hood, but at the same time not condemning him, if you will. So He makes the, the famous quote that Hood is too much lion and not enough fox. Hmm. The, the, there's a moment when Hood, uh, I think it's just after... And after or before Antietam, I'm trying to recall here, uh, beforehand, when um, Hood's men had captured uh, the, some federal ambulances, I think at 2nd Manassas. Right, mm-hmm. beforehand. And, mm-hmm. and, and Hood's superior demands that he turn these over and for his own use, and Hood won't do that, and ends up being placed under arrest. And then there's his patron, Lee, uh, offering to release him from arrest as long as he'll just say he's sorry about the whole thing. And Hood refuses to do that, which on the one hand reflects uh, Hood's honor as a gentleman, which you talk about uh, uh, substantially as part of the, the culture of the time. But what struck me about it is that he, he Lee makes it as, as easy as possible for Hood to get out of this. Just, mm-hmm. uh, you don't have to apologize to say, you know, basically you're sorry it happened. And Hood won't do it, so Lee finally says, well, all right, you can go anyway. Uh, but we'll deal with it later, because, as you, as you just said, Lee relies on Hood as a, a lower echelon commander very very much. But that struck me as, as, as it reminded me of, of what Joe Gladhar has written about in General Lee's army, that, that for all that Lee has praised, he really had some serious discipline problems in that army. And here's Hood just defying his his, his own uh, 
mentor refusing to apologize and still getting his way. Right, and, and this comes at the same time that there's word of a grumbling amongst the Texas Brigade to give us hood, that they refuse to go into the next campaign. And uh, those listeners, uh, as you well are aware of, the Antietam campaign know how important Hood's men are in the West Woods, giving up their breakfast to really stand off the, the frontal assault from Joseph Hooker in the morning through the cornfield. It's really Hood's men who rally there and drive the Union back across the cornfield. And and so it becomes very important that Hood is with them at that at that fight. And I think it shows... I don't know if Lee has a particular favoritism for the Texans, but if the Texans... It seems that the Texans in many ways have have that elevated stature, if you will, that if they're able to say, well, we're not going to fight in the next campaign if Hood's still under arrest, and then that influences Lee's decision here, I think that really shows you at least how much Lee thought of the Texas Brigade, which is so interconnected with, with Hood's leadership of them. That's right. Hood initially was uh, was put in charge of the 4th Texas Infantry Regiment and, and eventually appointed to command the entire brigade. Right. Uh, now, you point out uh, at Fredericksburg, when Hood's men are under fire, when, when the battle is essentially won, it's clear that Burnside's charges up Marie's Heights are, are, are futile, and the, the, the battle is, is clearly a Confederate victory, that Hood there behaves rather conservatively and, and, and pulls his troops out of harm's way instead of launching them in some sort of uh, reckless assault down the, the ridge, and that, that that contradicts what most people think of Hood in terms of uh, being a, a, a tactician who is willing to attack at all costs. Mm-hmm. And 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 that and I think that's probably twofold with with of course victory seeming at hand. Hood's sort of in the middle, if you will, of that entire Confederate defensive line. So even though there's some some troops around him that are doing some of the fighting, it doesn't seem that it's absolutely necessary for him to be engaged. And Hood's, uh, you know, the Texans were pretty battered up both both in earlier engagements in 1862, and it, it seems like. Hood may have used this also as an opportunity to, to give his men a breather here since they had been so involved in, in major assaults that had really battered the, the brigade in earlier co- combat operations in 1862. In talking about the relationship of, of Hood and this brigade, uh, the Texas Brigade, they are the only brigade from Texas in the Army of Northern Virginia, so they, they have this strong regional identity. Um, but you describe the bond between Hood and the soldiers. Uh, how does he cultivate that? I think it's it's through many elements. It's through you know it seems that you know especially in the winter of '61 when when Hood is spending some time with the Texans. You know he's attending. They put on these these plays. The the Hood's minstrels, as they were known, Hood's in attendance there. He seems to really have a real nice personal touch. Some of the vignettes that I discovered of personal conversations, jokes between Hood and and some of the other soldiers, uh, which I didn't include in the book, really show that Hood really cares individually about these men. When you read their reminiscences of John Bell Hood, they are enormously favorable, talking about, you know, their they were in awe of him as a commander and as as a leader and that he knew who they were, he, he engaged them in conversation. And I think that's evident when you look at Hood's reaction after some of these battles, how he is just torn apart in tears surveying the casualties, that he really has this 
deep affection for these men and and they for him i think you know they become as i mentioned earlier they become synonymous with one another and who doesn't have that benefit as he moves up the ranks the further he it seems he's removed from his texans the more of a difficult challenge he faces militarily as a commander and and i I think that's an inter- you know that's one of the things I really wanted to explore is are these bonds necessary for Hood as as a commander because he takes these things so personally he shares in religious experiences with the men of of reading a Bible or he talks to them on the march or and so forth. So so as he that is interesting because as he rises through the ranks he's he's a very successful brigade commander a reasonably successful division commander, and then after Gettysburg, when he's promoted to uh, command uh, a larger force, eventually the entire Army of Tennessee, uh, he becomes disastrously unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the you've touched on some of the reasons why that uh, traditional reasons advanced for Hood's lack of success, uh, his, his poor standing at West Point, uh, or his wild childhood, and you'd argue those are not valid. Certainly there were other people who had low standing at West Point and did okay. Yeah, absolutely. And But, you know, I think uh, I think it was uh, Stephen Woodworth who pointed out in a book that, you know, he did go to West Point. He graduated. It was a very rigorous curriculum. And one of the – where Hood didn't necessarily do as well in drawing and French class, he did really well in the summer encampments. He loved those, particularly the military exercises where you would be utilizing some of the, the, the tactics. Uh, he And in terms of his demerits, he didn't really get any demerits looking at his demerit records with things specifically connected to military exercises. He seemed to excel at that, at that point of the curriculum at West Point. So I guess it depends on how you view that education, what's more important, those classroom sort of liberal arts type courses or the engagements on the battlefield itself. But as you mentioned, when he moves, when he gets promoted, I think maybe he's trying to recreate those bonds with some of the core commanders. But that the Army of Tennessee is just such a mess in terms of all the commanders who've been in and out and all the scars and hurt feelings that are left over. I think it would have been really, really hard for Hood to form those affectionate bonds as he had done with with the Texans earlier in the war. Well, he had issues with some leaders in the Army of Northern Virginia as well. And you know, the subtitle of your book is the, the Fight for Civil War Memory. As early as the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Antietam, mm-hmm. uh, you show Hood uh, engaging in a, a, a war of words with uh, McClaws over the memory of Antietam, over just what happened on that battlefield. Right. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think, you know, he... You know, I think Hood seems to me to be rather aware early on, if you will, of uh, that. You know, I think many from the Civil War generation are aware of that, that 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 there is this moment in time where they are going to have to sit down and write out the history of the war. And it seems that Hood early on is is at least aware of this somewhat. That you know, he may be called at some point to to chronicle the details of the war itself. And of course, you know, as as you know, immediately after Antietam itself, you know, he's spending some time, you know, seeking out information, if you will, on this particular controversy when you have Nicholas Davis, who's sort of writing this brief history of, I think it's called something like the campaign from Texas to Maryland. And, you know, he's, he, Davis himself, is being pretty critical in this, in this short history 
uh, McClaws, you know, he blames him for not really being able to secure victory. And, and so it seems that because Davis is connected to the Texas Brigade, McClaws reads this, finds out about it. He, he challenges, he actually contacts Hood himself and says, you know, your man, Nicholas Davis, is tarnishing my reputation. And, of course, Hood sort of says, well, I didn't read the book, so I can't really initially respond to this, you know, and saying that, I think he says to Davis that, or he says to McClaws that Davis had used some research materials uh, from official records, the Adjutant General's office. So that's really where that information. But, you know, he sort of tries to pass the buck, if you will, Hood does, getting involved to sort of, you know, not really turning his back on Davis, but at the same time trying to not anger McClaws. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty interesting that you're starting to see this memory war so early on with, with Hood, and I think that shows what's going on in the future with him as well. You know, I mean, at that point, the war is, is you know, very much not over, and he's already uh, determined to, or, you know, concerned about what, how, the, how it will be recorded, what, uh, what will happen. Uh, now, at Gettysburg, Hood commands a division under in Longstreet's Corps. He's involved in the famous attack on the second day on Little Round Top in the left wing of the Union line. And that's where uh, Hood is wounded seriously for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, that, how did that affect him? Well, you know, he, you know, the first injury is, of course, the the shot to the arm. Pretty much 15 minutes, really, as that attack is getting, uh, as it, it sort of steps off there, it removes Hood from the field of battle, so he's not there to to be part of the of the the Gettysburg campaign itself. It removes him from the field of battle. He ends up, you know, working his way to, out of out of Gettysburg, away from the Army of Northern Virginia, down to Richmond, where to spend some time recovering from his wounds. And this is what I think really begins that socialite relationship that he has with the diarist Mary Chesnut, who really helps us fill in the gaps in Hood's military career because Hood is absent from the Army on these wounding occasions and is spending time in Richmond recovering. She is really able to to give us some details on Hood's life. I think, you know, the first injury is an interesting one because the limb remains intact, and of course, one whole chapter here deals with, with this question of amputation, which is the subject of the new book that I'm working on, is what does amputation really mean for Confederate soldiers during the course of the war? How does it alter their relationships with other soldiers, with their families, with potential mates and wives and, and children and so forth? And the the arm injury doesn't necessarily seem to have as much of an impact as when Hood loses his leg at Chickamauga, because that's where we really see a lot of the the women of Richmond rallying around Hood, you know, spending time with him, you know, bringing him oranges. Hood, you know, as expensive as oranges were during the American Civil War, Hood always seemed to have enough oranges that were, I think, almost $5 a piece at the time period. And the women would bring Hood oranges as he was laying out on a couch, if you will, at, at different residences in Richmond when, when visitors would come to see him. It, it certainly altered, I think, how, how he and he interacted with with uh, with other members of society because now he's I think being moved from that military culture now to this this social culture and this is, of course is also the opportunity where he gets to really know Jefferson Davis as well which sort of sets things up for command in '64. Well, we'll come back and talk some more about this Hood's uh, 
life uh, away from the front as well as his return to action. We'll do that in just a moment when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. John Bell Hood was not afraid of anything on the battlefield, but he met his match in Richmond in the person of Sally Preston. We'll find out more about that when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In Sue McDaniel's book, I Am Heart, she talks about feelings. Now, Sue is ready to bring her book, blogs, and topics of interest to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. I Am Heart will discuss concepts and ideas that affect all of us and will provide experts and solutions to help everyone. Sue, speaking through I Am Heart, will answer your questions, share your answers, and learn together with you. Each program will have topics you've suggested, homework to learn about yourself, and moments of connection. Tune in to I Am Heart, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Brian Craig Miller about his new book, John Bell Hood and the Fight for Civil War Memory. We've been talking about Hood's career as a leader in the Army of Northern Virginia and a a few references to what goes on in uh, uh, as he goes west and fights with the Army of Tennessee. Uh, But Brian, you mentioned your uh, you're working on a, a book on the question of amputation, and you devote a chapter to that here. Uh, Hood's leg is, is shattered at Chickamauga, and he has that amputated. So he has two disabling wounds. One, his, his left arm is useless. His right arm is gone. And then, uh, as, as you pointed out just before the break, he spends time in Richmond where uh, he is lionized by female society as, as a representative of the Confederate uh, uh, war effort of Confederate uh, uh, men uh, sacrificing for their country. And in particular, uh, Mary Chesnut, the famous diarist, writes about him extensively. Uh, she sees him at all these parties and frequently in the company of, uh, of, of Buck Preston, Sally Buchanan, uh, Preston, uh, who has uh, the ability to make all the men fall in love with her, uh, which she does not reciprocate. She seems to be quite the uh, the, the, the belle of, of, of Civil War Richmond. What I want to ask you is uh, a question that has been bothering me since graduate school days when uh, David Herbert Donald, my advisor, put out the argument in uh, one of our seminars that the relationship between Preston and Hood was a uh, was a metaphor uh, was 
a metaphor for the the Confederacy's failure ultimately. Uh, that that Hood and, and Preston eventually are engaged, sort of, really against her will, uh, but nothing ever comes of it. And in that sense, uh, the, the Confederate war effort never wins over the the people as a whole. Uh, is that uh, too far fetched? That's an interesting uh, assessment there. I think you know if we look at well, their relationship is so unique. Uh, that being Hood and Preston's, it's this. You know, this Hood falls in love with her at first sight, it seems. You know, he describes her, I guess, as a Kentuckian Wood, as a thoroughbred, you know, that she's the perfect specimen of womanhood, and, you know, she rolls her eyes a lot at John Bell Hood. But, you know, she she sticks with him for a while. You know, they she, she has these moments where she says awful things about Hood so he can hear her in the next room. And then, you know, she wears a some sort of diamond ring to signify their engagement after he gave her an ultimatum about it. And, you know, this this hot and cold relationship goes back and forth. I don't think she can really make up her mind, but what I think makes this all fascinating is the fact that he is missing a leg, and that a visible scar, not one that's hidden behind a coat, but that empty sleeve. And if Preston rejects him outright, it would have crucified her amongst the women. There's a... There, once the relationship goes cold, she, you know, the women start talk, talking behind their backs about her. That you know, how dare she do this to poor Hood? And and I think that that's at least showing you that Southern women by that point in the war are willing to overlook these injuries because whether it's it's this necessary duty they feel to to take to take care of the wounded men, or if they find within themselves this sense of being able to look past the injury. Or one of the things that I'm arguing is that women now see this as an opportunity to change the nature of marriage and relationships in the South, that women will no longer be exclusively dependent on their husband. Rather, a codependency will form, particularly because this injured, amputated man now needs this woman or a wife in order to help him survive on a daily basis. I have a case of a of a wife who every day takes her uh, amputated Confederate veteran out to the, the fields and ties him to the plow so he can work the fields for the day. And when, the, and then when it's time for meals and in the evening, she goes out and unties him, brings him into the house. I mean, he cannot function without her. And so maybe that, uh, that, that metaphor of the South, you, if we include this, this new recognition, I think, of, of injured men, it may alter that a bit, but that, that's a fascinating assessment from Professor Donald there. No, the you talk about the honor and, and manhood and how it's defined in the South. Going back to the early chapter about John Hood growing up in Kentucky and, and you know learning to ride a horse and hunt and do all the things that men did. Um, but amputation, you, you argue, necessarily changes the definition of, of manhood in the South. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things I've, I, I've been having difficulty finding is references to amputees before the war. And I just came across a, a few weeks ago when I was in Austin, Texas, the story of a Mexican War amputee, a veteran from the Mexican War effort who became an amputee. He lost his leg, got a, a prosthetic limb, a peg leg, if you will, a wooden leg, and he was ridiculed 
by society. He, you know, the, uh, you know, it seems like he was suffering depression. People made fun of him. Kids came by and kicked the prosthetic leg. He was really reviled because of his injury. That he wasn't, I guess, appearing to look like the proper Southern man. If 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 we agree with the scholarship that says that that appearance was very important for Southern men, you had to show that you looked like the the proper male specimen, if you will, to prove your manhood. But that I so I think there's as I argue there's this crisis developing in the definition of manhood, particularly when you're seeing slavery being swept away, and if and these pillars that Southern society had defined these notions on are crumbling. That means that they now have to I think incorporate this imperfect male physique and just you know incorporate it seamlessly, if you will. So you're no longer ridiculing men who have injuries. You're accepting them. You're taking care of them. You're doing what you can to provide for them, particularly as this cloud of, de- of defeat and failure in the American Civil War engulfs the South at the same time. It's, it's, it's really fascinating because I think in the middle of the war, I'm uncovering people who are still adamantly rejecting amputees, but then others who are changing their minds very quickly. And I think it's, it's one of those unknown elements that are going on as we were talking earlier some of these darker things that are going on in the civil war that we've not that the scholarship really hasn't addressed i i think for me personally seeing so many or seeing brief reports of so many amputees who are coming home from this particular series of conflicts really has prompted me to think larger about what amputation and disability mean throughout the civil war era uh, there's an essay on that topic on, on amputees in the north, I think Francis Clark wrote uh, right. a few years back, uh, and, and which argues that the, uh, at least in the north, it, it very quickly was uh, a badge of honor. The empty sleeve was not to be hidden, but was uh, not literally the red badge of courage, but, the, the, but a visible badge of courage. Um, and I'm wondering if the north and south had different responses to their, their amputated veterans. Uh, absolutely. If you look at the state records uh, of pensions and pension programs, some, you know, because these state budgets are so wrecked financially from the war itself, some states quickly extend funds uh, to help out the amputees, whether it's land grants in Texas or prosthetic limbs in South Carolina. And some states are really slow on this process as well, arguing constitutionality. Are these men worth it? You really need some pleading from some from some officials to get, to invest such large sums of money into caring for for these amputated men um, and it seems many of them just disappear you know the that unless they go and apply for a prosthetic limb or a pension that their records really vanish it's 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 been a challenging project to actually find specific cases of 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 amputees and how they're adjusting to post-war society and then not to mention not to forget the border states here as well, where you have questions of, well, what of the Confederate veterans in a union state like Kentucky, where the the governor of Kentucky vetoes the first pension bill saying, well, they don't deserve it. They're traitors. You have this language about they were traitors. They went against the the the, the will of the United States, so why should they receive any money, even if it's just for wounded or amputated men? Now, Hood himself, uh, after the war, uh, he goes on, gets married, and fathers eleven children, which you suggest may may perhaps in part be uh, a way of demonstrating that that he is still uh, a functioning man. 
Yeah, and I think it's also with with how Hood react. You know, what are some of the? You know, I think for previous biographies of Hood, it's that post-war year that's been sort of missing. That we have a few anecdotes about Hood, but what I really tried to do was mine the newspapers of New Orleans because it seems Hood was mentioned quite a bit there, particularly with charitable activities. He is. If there is uh, the Southern Hospital Association that cares for wounded, amputated men, you have the Lauderdale Orphans. You know, he helps support when they're touring about to raise money for the orphan children. You know, he even uh, supports a fundraising endeavor for victims of the Franco-Prussian War. It seems that, you know, the that Hood in some ways is taking the painful memories of the American Civil War, those big amounts of casualties among the Texans and, you know, that that moment that he has surveying the Franklin battlefield the next day where he just looks emotionally distraught, it really seems he's actively working in the post-war period to care for the men that maybe other elements of uh, former Confederate society would have left behind. And I think that's partially because maybe he feels responsible, maybe this this charitable endeavors are helping him deal with any post-traumatic stress that he may be suffering, but also he can really relate to these men as an amputee, and he understands the challenges that they're facing on a daily basis, and it seems that may be another reason why he's so involved in, in charitable endeavors to take care of the wounded following the war. Well, a, a question I have to ask, because I implied the opposite in the introduction, uh, and, and it came to mind when you mentioned him looking at the battlefield at Franklin. Uh, you did not find any evidence that he actually did use uh, opiates for the pain of his, his wounds, and that that's not why he was an ineffective general. Not at all. In fact, uh, interestingly enough, a few weeks ago I was in Austin, Texas, for the rededication of the Texas Brigade Monument. And I, uh, a medical professional approached me and talked to me more about opiates and what it would actually do to the brain. And his, you know, based on his medical research and some of his other colleagues as a physician, he was just there because he likes the Civil War as a hobby, he was explaining to me that the doses at that time would have, he would have had to take enormous amounts of doses because of chronic pain that he would have suffered from this injury. I mean, the medical professional was not willing to discount that Hood wouldn't have taken the opiate, but at the same time, he said he would have had to take enormous quantities of it, which would have been difficult to garner at the time period. And he said medical research shows that it wouldn't have necessarily clouded his judgment militarily. Hood wouldn't have been necessarily in a fog, if you will, that he would have just been relieved of the initial pain. But uh, in terms of usage of the drug, I was not able to find any records. If Hood's personal physician's journal ever comes to light, it would obviously say that what his physician had prescribed, looking at medical records for this amputation project, they are enormously detailed. Every hospital patient, it seems, everything that happened to them, if you're able to find these medical records, is, is crystal clear. There's nothing that's sort of forgotten, if you will. And so I wasn't able to find the evidence, but I thought that was a really interesting, I had never thought sadly, to, to talk to a medical professional about, well, what would this actually do to your brain? And, and he argued that it, it wouldn't have affected his military judgment whatsoever. So we're back to just uh, other reasons for his, his ineffectiveness at high command levels. But you mentioned the Texas Brigade Monument, and that brings up a point uh, tied in with the question of Civil War memory. Uh, there are no statues of John Bell Hood anywhere. Uh, why is that? Well, I think, interestingly enough, what I was 
that was one of the questions. There is, there's no monuments for Hood, his grave site in Mentory, Louisiana. What, the first time I went there, it took me forever to find it. I was just circling about. The, those tombs are hard to see. Only in the last couple of years did somebody put a historical marker there to show that General Hood was buried there. And what I was able to find was, because of Hood's tragic death, dying of the second wave of yellow fever in the city of New Orleans in 1879 that killed Hood, his wife, and eldest daughter, leaving ten orphaned children behind. All the money that was raised on behalf of, if you will, of Hood's memory, all went to take care of the children. In fact, one of the things I point out that Hood's descendants become living monuments. There was no fundraising effort to say, let's put up a statue of John Bell Hood in in New Orleans, like there was for Robert E. Lee at Lee Circle, rather the money that was raised in New Orleans went directly to take care of the orphan children, to provide them education and give them money that to to try to go into the future. And it was a, a great thrill at that at that Texas meeting that there were actually Hood descendants in the audience uh, who actually sat in the front row, who were very excited to to talk about their relative, and they, in many ways, are the monument to General John Bell Hood, even though it's not something that I think we can see scattered on landscapes. You know, Hood doesn't, other than Fort Hood or Hood County in Texas, we don't see a lot of uh, John Bell Hood car dealerships or he's not on a giant mountainside anywhere. It's it's his family members and that, that really, I think, represent his memory. And I think that's why so many family members feel so personally about Hood's reputation and memory, not just at the time period, not just the descendant, the children themselves, but future generations have taken some of these shots that historians have done against John Bell Hood very personally, because I think of that intimate connection as, as living monuments of, of the late general. Well, I think they will appreciate then your, your very interesting and, and uh, uh, I, I think innovative and worthwhile take on Hood and uh, I know our listeners will do so too. Unfortunately, Brian, we're out of time. It happens too soon each week, but thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Listeners, you'll want to take a look at John Bell Hood and the fight for Civil War memory. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.